kids. My name's Michael Kaiser. And I'm John Wilson. And welcome to another episode of Make Ours Marvel. This is episode 28 of the show. The best of times, the worst of times. Because this is the episode we were coming to our first year of Marvel's annual releases. Um, and we have a really great book to talk about. <laughs> and a not so great book to talk about. <laughs> Well, which one's which? I have no idea. You know, I'm just going to leave it to the listener to decide on their own. Okay. <laughs> but these are Strange Tales Annual 2, followed by the Fantastic Four Annual 1. And um, remember a few episodes back, Mike, when I mentioned that there is one comic <coughs> that I promise myself I'm never going to read it again. Yeah. And then I end up having to read it again. Well, you didn't probably have to read it. I imagine you still remember the horror, but... Yeah, I probably could have saved myself this time. But the, but the Strange Tales Annual 2 is that one. Okay, now, so here's the thing. I remember you saying this multiple times over multiple episodes, how much you hate this. Uh-huh. And I read it and thought, you probably have Fantastic Cast Syndrome or something. Because I bet you covered this... In classics, so you're reading all these awesome, awesome, amazing Spider-Man comics, and then you had to read this. Okay. Because I'm reading this thinking, this isn't a whole lot different than most of the stuff we read. (laughs) You're probably right. And actually, as I was going through it, I didn't feel the bile as strongly as I did in my memory. Which is uh-huh. probably, like, it's probably the Make Arts Marvel syndrome of how, like, we're just drinking the Kool-Aid and everything seems a little bit, you know, less horrible. Um, yeah. But I think you're right. I, it was, it was, I, my first time to read this was before classics. Um, okay. But my first attempt to do a Spider-Man read-through, whenever I found out the digital comics were so easily accessible in this modern age, um, I read this issue. Now, I've known about this issue since I was seven years old. Mm-hmm. Because it gets referenced in an editor's note during Amazing Spider-Man 18. Okay. The Torch is looking for Spider-Man because Spider-Man ran out on him on the previous issue. He wants to make sure he's okay. So he puts a sign in the air with his flame letters, Spider-Man, meet us at our usual meeting place. Or our last, meet me at our last meeting place. And he waits for him on top of the uh, the Statue of Liberty. And it oh. says, an asterisk, um, they last met here in Strange Tales Annual 2. And so for 20 years, I didn't know what Strange Tales Annual 2 was. It was this like unread story, unread comic. And I finally read it. I was like, oh my God. And then we did it for classics and Josh and Don tore it to pieces even more. And um, yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, you could do that, but we can tear apart everything we read really right now. So right. I guess I just was like reading this thinking, you know, like compared to say, I don't know, a replicator ray that we just covered in Journey into Mystery. This was, <laughs> this was lovely reading. I mean, that story made me angry. This story was fine. You know, it's like just okay, whatever. Um, um, before well, we get into it, though, just because this will be the only thing we'll talk about in this episode is annuals, two annuals. Mm-hmm. Do you? What do you think about annuals? In general, because for me, they're always just kind of like a thing you have to suffer, sort of. Okay, so like I was reading comics in the early 90s whenever annuals were like a crossover event. Uh-huh. Like especially in DC, they always had that. Yes. That, uh, whenever, those whenever, alien attacks or whatever. 
when DC was doing Armageddon 2001 and mm-hmm. all that stuff, Marvel was doing like Atlantis attacks and the evolutionary right. war. Um, I missed both of those though. And I came in whenever they were doing like smaller crossovers, like mm-hmm. you'd have stuff like Daredevil and Punisher and Captain America would have a crossover with their annuals one year. And Spider-Man's were always just within the Spidey titles. He would have a protracted story. Um, the one I just recently read for 1992 also had a new Warriors chapter uh, because Nova's bad guy, the Sphinx, ended up being the big bad behind everything. But um, but yeah, annuals always seemed to be something that was supposed to be really cool and it was really unimportant. Like right. it didn't matter. Yeah, and you had to buy it anyway because you're trying to collect, you know, every number from this title. And you don't and think like it's going to be bad. You think it's going to be good because the covers look good. Well, like you said, in the 80s and 90s, especially, they start turning them into crossovers. So now I'm like just collecting this one book. But now I buy this annual and something crazy happens in it. I don't even know what's going on. And it's to be continued somewhere else that I'll never read. So it was just obnoxious kind of. Right. Um, yeah. A lot of my modern comics reading has been DC. And a lot of the annuals that DC has done over the last few years have been much more tied to story. Um so you you know reading the annual is actually sometimes it's an essential chapter of the narrative so, and it's just you know a special longer issue mm-hmm. um other times it's it's different but I, I feel like modern annuals do a much better job of making the stories special and important right and i and, think these annuals that we're covering tonight aren't so bad either because it's essentially just bigger versions of stories we're already covering yeah, this is the amazing Spider-Man face-to-face with the Human Torch. This is a really, really big deal. The story's kind of crap, right. but it's a really big right, deal. Right. And same with Fantastic Four. And it's not like it's not like taking us out of what we've been reading to do something completely different or to have a weird crossover or whatever. It's just an extended version, which I guess is what an annual should be, but eventually does not become that very yeah, quickly. In the Fantastic Four annual, it's like a culmination of an ongoing subplot for one of their supporting characters. I mean, Namor's ever since the fourth issue of the series namor has been looking for his people yeah yeah um, and that one was really good but let's talk about this one first i guess yeah um annuals i'm just gonna say a little bit about how annuals work um okay because archie comics is actually the first one to do an annual and uh um they did a collection of i think new stories it was, it was basically just a special longer comic story filled with a bunch of Archie short stories that, you know, that didn't go into the regular comics. Um, DC started the, or I don't know if they started the practice, but whenever they brought in annuals with Superman annual number one in 1960, they were using their annuals to like go back through the catalog and publish a lot of popular stories or stories with a common theme. Um, and weirdly enough though, DC's annuals were not annual. Uh, huh? Super, Superman annual came out twice a year. So okay, yeah, that's that's a thing. Um, and so whenever Marvel comes along with their annuals, sure, there there are a lot of reprints, especially in Strange Tales, but there's also a lot of new content to sort of set them apart from the uh, big boys they're competing with. Um, we're going to get several years of you know new stories from their annuals before Marvel goes into just reprints for their annuals. So, anyways, um, but this this has been a year, so this is hmm. on target, right? Mm-hmm. An annual. And actually, apparently, Strange Tales has already had an annual, because this is number two. Right. Last year, uh, Strange Tales had an annual, and Millie the Model had an annual. Okay. And this year, but Millie the Model also has an annual, but we don't care. 
And we don't care about last year's Strange Tales annual either because no. apparently Human Torch was not in it. So yeah, it actually was printed right before his first story. Okay. The annual came out and then 101 came out. So for that one, they were just printing more stories probably yeah, or longer re- stories. I think it was all just reprints of stories from previous issues. I think it was really oh. just a big collection of stories. Okay. Well, this one is a fantastic new tale. It's a long-awaited epic-length thriller. So that should be exciting. Yeah, 20 pages uh, is epic. Strange Tales Annual number 2, which has a cover date of 1963 because it's an annual, and it came out in June, like we said, 11th probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and it starts out with the Human Torch doing his obstacle course thing. It's a little more advanced than it used to be. It used to just be like rubber tires in the sand and stuff. Now it looks a little cooler. Um, and he's having his sisters helping him, like trying to wreck everything and see if he can get out of stuff. And he mostly does. And she says, good job. And he says, how come I'm the only Fantastic Four member that ever has to train? And she doesn't really have an answer. And he never really said that. That's just what I was thinking. But anyway, um, they go home and he picks up a magazine that's on the coffee table, I think called Live or some sort of like, I don't know if it's supposed to be some sort of like Team Beat kind of magazine or whatever, but it has Spider-Man on it. And he's like, two whole stories dedicated to Spider-Man. That guy's lame. He's not as cool as me because I didn't learn my lesson last issue about trying to find hero worship. So um, he gets really mad and his sister's just like, dude, whatever, kind of rolls her eyes. She actually turns invisible on him because she's not interested. Um and then we cut to this museum where this guy named the Fox, who refers to himself as in third person as the Fox, talks about how the Fox is going to steal that that uh, uh, painting tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then later it shows how he does it. He pretty much just he and his goons like cut the electricity. So then they call electricity repairman, and they show up as electricity repairman, and they stuff one of the paintings in their pocket. They fix the electricity and walk out, and nobody is the wiser. Oh, and he also says, and by the way, since the Spidey guy's in the news, I'm going to frame him. So he literally frames him by like, uh, well, he doesn't really frame him, but he uses a frame to frame him by uh, putting like some spider web on the frame. So who else could have stole it? Because there's a spider web on the frame. It has to be Spider-Man. It couldn't just be a spider. It couldn't just be a spider because... Museums do not have spider webs. It is Spider-Man. So the whole world goes crazy. They're all looking for Spidey. We cut to Spidey, who's fully aware of this situation. And he's like, gosh, I really, I can't just deal with this myself because everybody's looking for me and stuff. I'm going to go get help. I remember that one Human Torch guy who, you know, presented himself at my school. He seemed pretty cool. And I know where he lives because he he's got a public identity. So I'm going to go to Glenville. And he heads on over there. And we cut back to Johnny, who's being abandoned by his sister. She's going to go out and have dinner with the other Fantastic Four members. He's not allowed to go for no reason. Um, she's, like, mothering him to death, telling him to, like, make sure he feeds the cat and, you know, go to bed on time and stuff. And he's like, oh, sis, shut up. Um, but she leaves. And no sooner does she leave that he gets a phone call from the city or the police or something. And they ask him specifically to help them hunt down Spider-Man. And he couldn't be happier because he doesn't like Spider-Man because Spider-Man's getting too much hero worship. So he's like talking to the guy on the phone. Then he's like, wait a minute. Someone's at my window. Hold on a sec. And he turns to the human torch to go like kill them with his fireball. 
But it turns out it's not just a random spectator. It is Spider-Man. So he gets really excited and he starts attacking him. And Spider's like, um, Spidey's like, you know, I'm just trying to talk to you a sec. Oh, we, oh, fine. You want to fight? Let's fight. And then they start fighting. And it's a really cool fight kind of. And they go all over the place. And ultimately, they're kind of evenly matched, you know. And then Spider-Man um, escapes via a uh, like at a construction site. He kind of makes a getaway. Yeah, he covers and, the torch in concrete and leaves. Uh, yeah, yeah. Covers the torch in concrete and he leaves and the torch has to like burn out of it. And that, you know, of course makes him like low on fuel. So he's walking around Glenville looking for Spider-Man as, as Johnny and Peter or Spider-Man finds like an abandoned chemistry factory. Don't leave those lying around because Spider-Man will beat you with them. And he goes in there and he decides he's going to design like a fire extinguisher web. They say something different that's cooler. But anyway, that's essentially what it is. A fire extinguisher web. And so then he like, oh, yeah, he like, you know, says, here I am, Torch. And the Torch has his flame again and starts chasing after him. And he kind of leads him into like this this spider web, like like a legit, legit like a spider would, you know, leads the fly into the spider web. And when the Human Torch gets in there, the more he struggles, the more like this foamy uh, fire extinguisher stuff like goes over him and it douses him and he's like listen i'm just trying to ask you to help me i didn't actually steal that thing why would i put freaking web on it and why would i come here and ask you for help if i did it and he's like because you're just trying to like glom onto my popularity man or something like that some stupid childhood answer childish answer so spider-man's like you know what forget this i don't need you and he goes away and then the Human Torch kind of has doubts as to whether he's right or not. Maybe Spider-Man is innocent. He goes to the local like police and kind of tells them what happened. The police, meanwhile, uh, find out about another robbery. So this makes Johnny realize Spider-Man can't be the robber because he was just fighting me five seconds ago. So he's like, oh, you know, what do I do? Oh, yeah. Then the cops are like, hey, let me go through this file cabinet real quick. Hey, there's this file on this guy called the Fox. It sounds just like him. It's probably him. And Johnny's like, great detective work. I'll take it from here. And he flies out. And I think that's when they meet on the Statue of Liberty because Spider-Man like projects his his awesome bat signal, his Spidey signal in the... Right, through the, the uh, torch. torch. Through the torch. So he sees it. So the torch sees the torch. Oh, and goes over there. <laughs> and he's like, okay, fine. I'll help you. And then Spider-Man's like, cool, do you have a plan? He's like, oh, yeah, I have it all worked out. It's this guy called the Monk. And then there's crickets. And Spider-Man's like, okay, what's the rest of the plan? Well, that's all I got. And so he's like, okay, well, how about we go to seedy places where the Monk could be and I'll use my spider sense to see if it – I'm sorry, the Fox. Why did I say the Monk? Anyway. Doctor Who on the ring? <laughs> where the, where the uh, Fox could be and I'll see if my spidey sense goes off. And so they kind of do that. He goes around. They find a secret lair of the fox, but the fox isn't there using his spider sense. And then I think they're like, well, let's go to an even seedier part of town randomly. And they go there. And then it really goes off. And they kept, I think they find him like um, he's got like a tele- – he's just sitting in the park with a telescope and charging five cents or something for looks. And the cops are like telling him to leave. And he's like, no problem. But they're like, wait a minute. Hold on. And they figure out that – He's wearing a mask and he's really the fox. And the fox has like Tony Stark roller skates on his feet and tries to get away. But of course, Spider-Man is so much faster than that and easily catches him. And then they find out that inside the telescope is the rolled up painting that he stole. And then Spider-Man says, boy, I needed you like I needed a hole in my head. And Human Torch says, oh, you love me. And then that's like the end. Yep. Pretty much. So 
I'm glad that you, you know, kind of halfway dug this at least. Because one of the questions I had coming into this is, this is not a great Spider-Man story. But how is it as a Torch story? I think it's pretty consistent with all the other Torch stories we've been reading. So I guess that's why I didn't really, like, come in here and just, oh, my God, this is horrible. Because this is just what he does. Yeah. And the fact fact that Spidey's in it made it better. Because at least there's that. Okay. So Uh, viewing it as an elevated Torch story instead of as mm -hmm. a brought-down Spider-Man story, Mm -hmm. uh, I think we can be a little bit kinder to it than maybe I was a few years ago. But that was a very different person a few years ago. In fact, I was listening to um, an episode of From Crisis to Crisis that I was on way back in the day. And uh, yeah, I, I, I present myself a bit differently in podcasting now than I did then. I mean, like, I, like you've said with Fantastic Cats, I could easily see if you were covering all Spider-Man and reading, especially the last two Spider-Mans we just read, and then having to read this. This is a huge letdown. Yeah. For, from a Spider-Man point of view especially, but just in general, it's not as good a story as Sandman or Dr. Octopus. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you know, think about all the torch stories we've been covering. What's so wor- what's so horrible about this one in particular? You know, compared to the wizard or I don't even know oh, the eel we just covered. You know, like right. what's the difference? What's the difference? Um, no, it's a good point. It is a good point. Um, you know, you mentioned that Sue was helping Johnny uh, train, <laughs> and Johnny was kind of complaining about it. But I was kind of thinking that it's I thought it was sort of charming. That Sue is helping Johnny train because she's concerned for his well-being. She's like, you know, you you don't get overconfident. Um, you can't make a mistake whenever you might mean you're finished in battle. You've got to be better. You know, she's, she's wanting him to be better because she worries about her brother. Yeah. The whole complaining thing was just me being snarky and inter- interjecting my own snark into it. I don't think he actually complains anywhere. I was just reading it going, how come – they're always talking about him training, and I can't think of any other time the Fantastic Four has trained other than the Human Torch. Yeah, but I kind of dig it because he is a teenager, and, and uh-huh. you know, put it, being forced to improve is is kind of cool. It's all ruined by the last panel on that first page, though, whenever he uses his fire to unlock a door. <laughs> well, let's look at the first panel on that page, and still, I still think Reed Richards is being kind of a jerk by not just legit giving him a good uh, obstacle course. Obstacle course, because invisible one has to hand wind it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like you you can't just have a speed setting and turn it on that's weird and then there's a hose also not that awesome um but then yeah like you said he's used he green lanterns the lock with his with his uh fire ring and we talked about this last episode when the sandman did the same thing sand is a solid sand grains can be packed compacted together to make a solid object mm-hmm. fire is plasma fire is not a solid but he uses it as a solid all the time. Like he made the freaking catapult thing with his flame, you know? And he creates Dr. Dooms with his flame. It's just craziness. They just think of him as Green Lantern or something. Yeah, well, I can almost buy making figures of flame because then you're dancing the flame around and it's a visual trick. If those yeah. things are going to start moving matter, then I have a big problem. Right. And then, okay, the thing about the tank. Are they saying that he just flew through a tank? I think... I had the same thought. They're saying he's flying between the wheels because there is space down there. But I don't think there's enough space for a human body to fit through. Right. So then I was wondering if they thought he actually is just living flame. But I don't think they've ever presented him that way before. Oh. Anyway. Yeah, because he has to burn bullets. They don't just go through him. Well, he does say I zip through without even touching a rivet. So I think the idea is that he is actually going through it. Um. I like how you mentioned that they've kind of have a little bit of history. Peter Parker 
saw the torch at his school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Whereas, I just made that up, too. He didn't say that in the book, but they do have a history. But the torch's only history with Spider-Man is that he broke into their building and then came uh-huh. by and, and Wacky oh, yeah. said, hey, I, I got the Doc Ock for you. You don't have to. Kind of intruded on his fight. So I, I bet you that Peter has a lot more respect for the Torch right now than the Torch has for Spider-Man. Did the Spider-Man not go to the Human Torch and say, thanks, you really helped me out, and the Torch had no idea what he was talking about? Uh, Peter did, at school the next day. Peter told him that? Okay. Yes. All right. Spider-Man goes remember. to him at the doctor's office and says, hey, Doc Ock's good. Catch you later, Bill and Ted. And okay. um, the next day at the school, Peter's like, hey, just want to let you know, you really helped me out a whole lot. He's like, uh, thanks, fella. Sure. Okay. So, yeah, Johnny is a hothead. Um, this is just so consistent with how they write him. Like, he just cannot stand that Spider-Man is getting press. What's funny is I like this line where he says, if it was Spider-Girl, you'd be really upset. And I'm yeah, thinking, could- how does that work? Like, either way, they're in the same profession. Well, do you remember so, how Sue's main personality characteristic is that she is the woman? Right. That's what I'm saying. So that was pretty kind of low and insulting and also not logical because it's like she could easily be upset about Spider-Man, too, stealing her superheroes under because they're all superheroes. But whatever. Um, we, we get some actually interesting stuff for Spider-Man continuity in this in that Spider-Man is blatantly accused of committing a crime in the newspapers in this. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the first time that's ever happened. Well... What about with the chameleon, no? Um, they didn't get that far? Yeah, I, I don't think so. Maybe. Maybe. That was such a tightly uh, framed story that was like 10 pages. So, And we don't really see which newspaper or what the headline is. It's just like a, it's a caption that says the latest news. Uh, does it? Or does it actually I have I can zoom newspaper? in on it. It says Daily Chronicle, oh. Spider-Man Steals Priceless Painting. Oh, right. Daily Chronicle. So it's not even the bugle. It's something legit, maybe. <laughs> not just a tabloid rag <laughs> right um so oh by the way this is all drawn by jack kirby yes and as far as i know he does he had he did in his career very little spider-man yes so what do you think of his spider-man now that he's here now that we're up to that point well it's um it's drawn by jack it's inked by steve ditko uh-huh so it's a little bit of a blending of the two. I, I don't think it's as good as either of them. Um, like, I don't think this the artwork in this story is very good Jack Kirby artwork. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the Spider-Man in this story is very good Spider-Man. Um, I don't know. Yeah. He, 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 does, he just he doesn't have any of the cool aspects to him that makes him Spider-Man-y in, in the Spider-Man comics. But Yeah, it's funny. Like The entire universe that we're reading has been created by Jack Kirby except Spider-Man. Right. So, like, everything else, like, if Jack was drawing the Hulk, we'd be happy, or Thor, or Fantastic Four, or Sergeant Fury. But then it's like, but there's this little pocket where he never really touched anything, and that's Ditko's world. It's kind of like Claremont's X-Men. Yeah. He's just kind of sitting over there doing his thing. Well, like, one of the examples is that, like, Spider-Man runs a lot in this. He, like, speed runs. Uh Uh-huh. Ditko never has him speed run. Spider-Man's ground speed is never a thing. Right. On page seven, he not only runs like the Flash, but then later he says, I will whirl this cement mixer at super speed. And it's like, how can he? He does this now? That's a thing? Right. Maybe that just means he pushed it really hard because he's strong and it went at super speed. But it looks like he's like purposely moving his hands really fast or something. Right. I don't think that moving the drum faster is going to make the cement get processed faster. (laughs) I don't think that's how that works. It also doesn't shoot it like a cannon, but whatever. (laughs) Maybe you're just not using them right. 
It's an okay fight, though. Like, um, I mean, this was probably some of my favorite parts is where he's on the phone talking about how he'd be happy to help attack the Spider-Man as Spider-Man's literally behind him in the window going, hello. Hello. Um, that was all fun. And I like, you know, I mean, we don't really talk about fights much, but, you know, the fight's not horrible. Uh, I think my main problem with it is the constant scene changes. Yeah, from his, his backyard pool to the woods to a construction zone. And then he just quits on the next page. He says, as John Lee wearily heads for home. So, like, they covered some distance, and he has to walk through the city to get back home. Yeah, maybe they just don't know what to do when it's not New York. I guess. Because <clears throat> maybe that's why he's not swinging either, because there's no buildings to swing from. Oh, that's a good thought. Um, so I called it Fire Extinguisher <coughs> Web, because I don't know what he really said, but now I can read it. He said, ice-cold silicon crystals that he's adding, silicone crystals that he's adding to his web code. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. This is the 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 payoff to that particular sequence is my worst part of the story. Um, so he does put ice cold silicone crystals into his webbing. Now, now silicone crystals are a thing, and you can make them cold, like in a refrigerator or a freezer. They're just like little metal chunks. Mm-hmm. Put them in your webbing seems weird, and then whenever we get to the payoff of this scene in a little bit, it just is even is even weirder. Um, also, he's totally stealing these things from a chemical laboratory, a random chemical laboratory. He just like swings in the window, says, "Oh, I can play with this." Yes, but I assume, as a Spider-Man fan, and as I do, do you like it when Spider-Man uses science, even silly science, to actually defeat somebody? Yes, yes. I like what so, they're trying to do. Right, he outsmarts the Human Torch. Um, and those web shooters. Look at his web shooters on on page nine. I don't think I've ever looked at this before. Yeah, and Peter Parker in general is a much different Parker when he's Kirby Parker instead of mm-hmm. pure Ditko Parker. He looks more handsome and heroic. Yeah, he does. He, and he the doesn't web look like a teenager. Like gauntlets up his arm rather than uh-huh. like wrist wrist things. Yeah, maybe that's just for these ice particle webs. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> and then he puts on his cowl, and it's so awkward and weird looking. Yeah, yeah, that is weird. I like this little bit. Where they're asking Johnny if he's ever built motorcycles because um, it's pointless. Yeah, it is. But I liked it anyway. I don't know. Like, I could see this being cool if you're a fan of these books and this is like Spider-Man and Human Torch fighting. That's kind of neat. It's never happened before. I guess it happened once before, sort of, for three pages. I probably pages. need to be a, um, an unjaded Human Torch series fan that doesn't yeah. really know Spider-Man very well. That's probably what, uh, what I need to be to, to really get out of the kick out of this. Because, yeah, Torch... You know, walking home, you know, see some cops talking about motorcycles. And he's like, hey, you know, hanging out, maxing, relaxing, all cool. Shooting the breeze with my cops by the school. Um, And then Spider-Man shows up. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the whole ice cold silicon webbing thing. Yeah. This is this is ice silicon web. He catches the torch in it. The web is so cold that it makes the torch cough when he opens his mouth. Uh Uh-huh. And then it puts his flame out. It turns it to vapor. And then the really cold web changes the vapor into snow. Science. Ah. (laughs) But is this the first time Spider-Man has created a straight up, like, I'm going to catch a fly in my web web? Because that's an interesting thing he did there, too. Oh, you're right. Um, And I don't think he does that often even now. Like, that's not his move, necessarily. No, except for in the cartoon during the opening credits. 
Yeah. Or if he has to catch something, like a, you know, when a car is going to get thrown on pedestrians or something, he makes a little net to catch it. But mostly he just tries to web people up directly. Yeah, it doesn't set like the web trap. Yeah. So that's kind of neat. That is but, pretty great, actually. Um, I'm just trying to look for positives. But yeah, mostly that no, no, was just all, keep, that keep was all silly. Like that was mostly all silly. I like the dude, the cop that we'll probably never see again. He was kind of interesting for four panels, five panels. It makes it, me think about old style police work and how uh-huh. they have to go through a card catalog. <laughs> and it never really says why this card screams what's going on for this guy. Like it's right. just an, it's just kind of an easy solve. So whatever. We only have so many pages, I guess. But someone stole a painting and it could be the fox. It's like the fox. Why didn't I think of him before? This has all the trademarks of one of his capers. Was his last caper stealing art and leaving web on it? What what? What does this thing say that makes you think that that's him? But So one other thing about the, um, you know, we talked about how art and words don't always agree. Mm-hmm. The dialogue here mentions another painting getting stolen. Yes. Um, and that's what actually clinches it in Torch's mind and in the police's mind that Spider-Man's innocent because Torch and Spider-Man were wrestling whenever this painting was stolen. Right. And that's why they go start looking for the fox. Um but this other painting that was stolen is going to it's it's not going to get mentioned again. I know, right? He, they just they just discover the first one and they're happy. Right. So it says Spider-Man says let's work together and the fox and his gang leave town. They decide that the things are getting too hot, they've got to get out of there. Uh-huh. Only they don't. Uh yeah. At the, at the bottom of page 12, he says a wise general knows when to retreat. Don't panic, boys. We'll simply leave town for a while for our Did- uh health did he mean leave glenville and go to new york or or what because they're now in new york uh i don't like that i mean that seems like a good (laughs) no prize explanation i guess but i don't like that well i mean they do go to a different city but yeah that's a horrible way to escape why not go to alabama or something oh man i forgot all about the stupid dressing up as an old lady in my synopsis (laughs) that was actually somewhat comical but yeah horrible at the same time before we get to that, we do get to the one major important scene mm-hmm. that this is the reason why I hunted down this comic and was so excited to read it because um, once Torch puts the sign in the sky, Spider-Man lets work together, Spider-Man goes to the Statue of Liberty and shines his light, the torch. Yes. And um, that attra- so they meet there. And this actually becomes a thing. Torch and Spider-Man meeting on top of the Statue of Liberty is, is a, is a re- repeated concept. Yeah. Um, then we go, yes. Okay, so here's the thing. They have a list of places where the fox has been seen. Yes. So they and didn't leave town because no. they're hunting him down in places where he's been known to be. Or if he left town, he left town to go hide in places he's been known to be. Right. Yeah. Also, just because the fox was sighted in the New York subway three weeks ago doesn't mean he's going to be in the New York subway today. Except that he is. Except that he is, and he's waiting in ambush. So he didn't try and leave town. He tried to, like, set a trap. Right. It's, yeah, so maybe that panel is just all bonkers, that one panel. And it's a good uh, thing they came to the, the uh, subway first and not to El Hempo or whatever <laughs> that other place is. Yeah. So, yeah. And he's got this random anti-Spider-Man purse thing that, you know, <laughs> where did that come from? I don't know. That's all super sticky and he can't get out of it. It's like, It's covered right. in some sort of super glue. And then we get to the bit again where Spider-Man just outs that he has a spider sense, which he talked, which we did 
with uh, Chameleon, I guess, using the spider sense to communicate with him. Mm-hmm. And now he's talking to the Human Torch about it. I have a spider sense. I'm going to use it. And, spider, and Human Torch is like, oh, I've heard of that. So it's like, I ah. kind of forgave the Chameleon one because I feel like it was playing off the Ant-Man idea. Uh-huh. Where it just uses insect communication frequencies. Yeah. But here, the spider sense, it's gotten some more use. It's gotten some more refinement. And he's using it to track down a bad guy. Yeah, which makes sense. I just don't like that he tells people about it, I guess. No, you're right. And this is definitely the strongest use of spider sense yet. And he's outing it to the torch. Mm-hmm. Torches need to know. Yeah. Although um, it, is, it is funny to think about him just walking around on the street with the human torch. Like, I don't know what, holding out his hands, waiting for his head to buzz or something. <laughs> it's kind of funny. We get a marijuana advertisement. El Hempo Cigars? El Hempo Cigars. Yeah. Well, that's where the bad guys were, so that makes sense. Right. Stay in school, kids. And then, yeah, the end, I don't understand why the fox is standing there. in a tele- Like, how long was he planning to stand there? Was he going to ambush them again, or was he just thinking he could hide standing there forever? And why is he charging 10 cents to see planets when the thing doesn't even work because the painting canvas is stuck inside it? Yeah, it's a little bit of a useless disguise. Like, yeah, it's not a well, disguise that he can walk away with. It's a disguise that he has to hang around with. So what was the plan there? Just to be know. hiding in public, I guess. I don't know. So it's not a it's it's still not a great story. It kind of falls apart a little bit. It's not a great story, but no, no Strange Tales story has been a great story. It's just an OK Strange Tales story. And it has yeah. Spider-Man in it. So it's a little more fun. Now, I don't know if you have anything else to say. Nope. But. One last thing I have to say is Spider-Man and Human Torch are both kids. Right. So it's kind of cool that they're teaming up. It's also cool that they don't really get along because I definitely feel like Johnny is completely different than Peter Parker in temperament Mm -hmm. or personality. I also remember that Johnny did not get along or that Rick Jones thought Johnny was dumb too. So another example of two kids meeting and not liking each other. Right. So Johnny's just not particularly likable, I guess. And if he wasn't the Human Torch, I wonder how popular he would be. Yeah, I kind of feel like um, the the first Fantastic Four film got that exact concept with him. Mm-hmm. He's cute and, a, and, a, and arrogant and really not a very lovable guy. But yeah. he's got other kinds of things going for him that he seems to be happy with. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the rest of this book was just reprints of other stories that had previously appeared in Strange Tales or maybe other random anthology stories so that does wrap up this first annual and it's the last time john will ever read this book i really think plans <laughs> hope that it's the last time i ever read this book i know but i wanted to say it out loud because then that jinxes it you'll probably have to read it again now <laughs> i hate you um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what this is this is our last comic book for june 1963 oh I forgot that was going to happen this episode. Okay, shoot. Um, so that does mean we're going to have our likes and dislikes, our top and bottom uh, favorites. Let's do it. And I'm just getting the file open. So we got, I don't know order-wise, but we got Journey into Mystery 95, where the Replicator Ray, uh, Ant-Man fighting the Jazz guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Trago the Jazz guy who went to Spider-Man, India. Spider-Man 4 versus Sandman. Fantastic Four 18 versus Super Scroll. And then the two we've done, or no, Strange Tales 112, where we fight the eel and the living bomb. Tales of Suspense 45 
where Iron Man fights Jack Frost, who will someday become the Blizzard. And then the one we just covered right now, Strange Tales Annual number two, Spider-Man versus the Human Torch. All right. So what are your top and bottom picks? Bottom pick, Journey to Mystery number 95. Yeah. Easy. That's my bottom pick for the year, for the decade, <laughs> for my life. Top, okay, though. So that top. Well, you can Thor. do your bottom if you want. I'll think about my no, no, top. No, go ahead. I just, I just mentioned as, that's Thor, so I got that oh. down. I think I'm going to annoy you with my top pick. But What's your top pick? Because you want me to either pick Amazing Spider-Man 4 or Fantastic Four 18, because that's so obvious. I just predict that you probably would. I know, but I kind of... <sighs> Like, Jack Frost wasn't cool, but I did like the art, and I did like Happy Hogan, and I did like seeing Tony Stark's life a little bit. Yeah, it was a good story. I just don't know if it was... I think it's either Tales of Suspense or Amazing Spider-Man 4. I don't know that Super Scroll was really super awesome for me. It was okay. Mm-hmm. The whole business where he gets, like, all his powers from a ray or something in the in the fifth quadrant. that Whatever. Um, I'm going to give it to Tales of Suspense. I enjoyed it. That is pretty great. That's um, I know. I know. I think I only I mostly am because if there's any opportunity to not give it to Spider-Man or Fantastic Four, I should take it. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. I it was a page turner for me. I mean, Jack Frost ultimately was easily defeated, but I like the expanded 18-page format. I like the new characters. Tony Stark. The art was awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, that seems to have been uh, Iron Man's first time to rank as a top favorite oh no because um, i picked his i picked his origin too i remember that because we just listened to it maybe maybe i did it did i i don't know i think we picked spider-man's origin oh that oh no, no that's in the previous year never mind it is it is a number eight right up there at the top okay yeah sorry uh i was i was not looking at the 1962 numbers i was just looking at 1963 numbers okay so uh i might i remember to write mine down ahead of time so that i wouldn't be influenced by your shenanigans uh-huh. <laughs> well, you're going to pick Spider-Man, so just pick Spider-Man. Okay, so you can keep your duplicate Thor with his two non-functional hammers. This oh. annual is getting my vote for worst. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It I is mean, not worse. No way. I think it is. You? I think it is. <sighs> okay. <laughs> I cannot believe that. Like, this is just such a ho-hum story, but the replicator one, literally, like, I was so mad about it. <laughs> that I had to read it. No, it's good. It's good. Um, my best, we have, um, you know, the the monthly torch story with the eel was 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 decent. It was it was not a bad story. Ant Man was decent, not a bad story. Iron Man was probably the best of those three. Um, the Fantastic Four was good, but yeah, Spider Man takes it. And and the thing that is getting me about Spider Man is. Not just the human drama, but I think more than ever before, I'm really keying in on the Ditko art mm-hmm. and just the things that he's doing that no one else is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was too much fantastic visual storytelling in that issue for me to say anything else. So um, Spider-Man is my top choice for the month. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. So that Moving brings on. us to the Fantastic Four annual number one. Um, now, for what it's worth, the Marvel Masterworks volume puts this at the end after issue 20, but it came out between issues 17 and 18, and since there are no currently uh, continued plot lines, I think it fits in nicely between those two issues. Man, so looking at July is going to be very exciting, people. 
Yeah, after today, I mean, I like I'm liking this episode because we're gonna cover the, like, the Fantastic Four. It was big. July has so much good stuff. We know, we should talk about it at the end though. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm just gonna hit the highlights of this annual okay. because if I already go into the details of the plot, this would take a really long ass time. Yeah, it's like a fifty page. Namor has found his people. Mm-hmm. He's very happy. They're very happy. There's even a woman who is happy. The Lady Dorma, um, who's been in love with Tort with Namor since forever is finally happy that he's back and she's shunning her lover that she's been having warlord crank um but namor has no eyes for her um back in the fantastic four headquarters ben and johnny have some shenanigans end up messing up sue's wardrobe and like you know we should get out of the house you know what we should do we should take a vacation you know, we should take a vacation we should take a vac- vacation where there's weird stuff happening because i'm mr fantastic and that's my idea of a vacation there's all these giant sea monsters happening out in the ocean let's go check that out so they get on a vacation ocean going yacht and it's the one that has like you know the the uh um resort and everything on the boat yeah and um while they're hanging out they see oh look crazy sea monsters out oh by the way um alicia went with yes alicia went with them on the trip hey look crazy fish and sea monsters out there johnny says i'm gonna go check it out turns to the torch oh no one's got me and um these fish use their magical fish powers to get all the fantastic four down into the ocean into a magical fish air tunnel where Namor confronts them, says, hey, I am Namor. I am once again king of Namor land, Atlantis. And um, I want you to send this message to the um, to the upper world that they got to stay off my water and they got to stay out of my air above my water. Otherwise, it's war. And Reed's like, um, you know, that's not going to work, right? And you're probably just doing this to get me back for Sue. No one else in the entire issue says anything about Namor and Sue. Well, until the end. But Namor doesn't say anything about Namor and Sue. Sue doesn't say anything about Namor and Sue. Reed's like, oh, this is about Namor and Sue, isn't it? Okay, so um, they're down in the ocean and Reed, uh, sorry, Namor works together a thing with his Atlantis underwater technology, send the Fantastic Four back to their headquarters. Um, they call the United Nations, say, hey, this is going on. Let's go have a conference. So Reed, you know, just a guy, calls the United Nations and says, hey, get the boys together. So the United Nations has a general assembly and Reed's talking to them and they bring up an expert on the history of Namor and the Submariners. And he tells us about the Atlantis kingdom and how it was destroyed by, you know, the bombs of the um, Americans and upper world people. And he tells the origin of Namor, how um, an explorer on a boat uh, met, fell in love with an Atlantis princess and um, their love was the creation of namor but then reed's like yeah 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 but you know what namor's been doing terrible stuff let's not forget the terrible stuff that namor's been doing and the expert takes off his vase takes off his clothes and look it's namor and he um says fine i declare war on the human race and he goes in the ocean and he gets his guys and he gets his big ships and he invades new york city and in the captions, we find out he's also invading all the other cities all over the world at the exact same time. Um, the Fantastic Four fight back and um, the army comes and Mr. Fantastic realizes that the weakness is that all of the Atlanteans have water in their helmets. They can't be away from the water for very long. So they have water in their suits with them. So he's got this device that will evaporate the water inside their containment suits, regardless of the fact that, that is scientifically impossible. 
Um, sure, you could turn it to vapor, but it's going to stay in the suits, and they'll still have water with them. Um, while they're... You're not as smart as Reed Richards, so let's just back off a little. <laughs> okay. You want to have boiled Atlantean for dinner, that's just, fine. Just because it seems like magic to you doesn't mean it's not science. So he does his, uh, um, well, the big device falls over on him, and so he's in bed, <laughs> hurt. Right. Yeah. And so everyone else has to fire, and all the Atlanteans go, oh, no, and they fly away, and they go back to the water, and the war's over. But we're only, like, two-thirds of the way through the issues, kids. So um, Namor is like, fine, you messed up my war, Mr. Fantastic, I'm coming for you. And he pulls him out of his sick bed and turns him into an accordion and turns him into a punching ball. And Ben's like, man, you're beating up on a sick guy. That's low, man, even for Namor. Um, so he comes in and Torch comes in. They're fighting Namor. And Namor's like, hey, you know what? I knew the layout of the Fantastic Four building. And I know that right behind me is this little switch. You know, I flick the switch. Um, experimental gas will come into the off to the room. I just know this. I'm so glad that, that Reed has this. So flick. And suddenly the room is filled with experimental gas. And the torch's flame makes the gas explode. It doesn't hurt anything, though, except for the torch. It stuns him and puts his flame out. Meanwhile, Namor has escaped out the window with Sue Storm as a captive. He takes Sue down to his underwater uh, vehicles. And um, Lady Dorm is all like, don't worry, Namor. We'll do whatever you want to. I love you. I'll be by your side. I'm Lady Dorma. He's like, I don't have any time for this. We got to save the girl. Um... The Fantastic Four catch up to him. There's more fighting McFightenstein. And um, I think that takes us all the way to the end of the issue. What's the next thing that happens? Oh, yeah. Lady uh, Lady Dorma and Warlord Krang are like, he likes the Earth Girl more than he likes his own people. We're racists. Kick her out of the window. So they kick Susan Storm out the window. She's in the ocean. She's dying from water because if you have too much water, it can kill you. And uh, while Thing and Namor are fighting in the ocean, they happen to go down and see Susan just floating at the bottom of the ocean. Like, oh, no, we got to save her. So they save her. And then Namor um, goes back to his people. And um, he's like, OK, y'all, I want to take I want to use your, your, your craft and get Sue really quickly to the hospital. They're like, no, no. If you want to save the girl, you got to leave and never come back. We're going to take our ship home. So he goes back up and gets Susan and flies her to the hospital. Fantastic Four can follow slowly in their own little boat. And when they get there, Sue's all better. And um, Namor's gone. Mm-hmm. And they're all happy. And Namor's all sad. He the walks end. through town. Yeah. And he goes back and finds his people. And his entire city has been abandoned. Oh, yeah. That's a big plot point. And so, yeah, that's the end. So... Strange Tales was kind of okay drawn, and I think that's because Steve Ditko spends way more time drawing Sandman, and I think Jack Kirby spends way more time drawing this annual, because this annual is glorious looking. It's really great throughout. Like, I, like whenever Jack Kirby was backing off on other efforts, mm-hmm. I knew that Sergeant Fury was coming. I knew that Avengers Next Men were coming. I knew that this annual was coming. Mm-hmm. So I was just imagining that he was probably using a lot of that time to work on some of these other projects. And this, I mean, it's 37 pages of mm-hmm. glorious Jack Kirby art. Oh, it's so good. That splash page in the beginning in particular, where he's like riding those two turtles and, you know, got the crown and the dude has like the shell and is announcing the king and all that. And there's like yes. immediately following that is a double page spread. Our of, first double page spread. 
Yeah, of 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 Submariner taking his crown and everybody cheering him and stuff. It's just so cool. And there's, I mean, it's the kind of really big, beautiful architecture we associate with Asgard, but uh-huh. it's Atlantis. Yeah. So there's just like there's this gigantic structure shaped like a sea dragon that is the arch of the hall that they're in. And it's and like it's great as Ho Hum is like, I think it was Dick Ayers or someone will will design like. Uh, a warlike race that comes down and and paints polka dots on our bridge or whatever. Like Jack can make a design, and these Atlanteans look like Atlanteans, and this is going to be like a design yeah. that's carried over to modern times. Either this is how Atlanteans look. This is their style. This is their armor. This is their you know design. It's really awesome. It's not just a mustache. And then um, we get we get some really great shenanigans with the Fantastic Four. Like there's some really great family stuff where Mm -hmm. I think Reed and Johnny take things farther than they've ever taken them before. And it really backfires in a, in a, in a way that makes me very sympathetic to storm and Johnny or Johnny. And what'd you say? You said Reed and Johnny. I'm trying to say Johnny and Ben. Is that what you mean? Neither one of us can talk straight, but yeah, I meant to say (laughs) Ben and Johnny. Right. Right. So does this mean that, (laughs) that Ben Grimm is susceptible to heat? Apparently. Yeah. He's gotten, he's done hot stuff before. Like, um, Oh, no, no, he did it to Johnny. He gave Johnny hot water or something. Like, for some that reason, I, I assumed that if you threw the thing in a volcano, he'd be okay. But maybe not. He can't even take, like, Johnny practical joking and making this room a little hotter. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's an evolution of the character that comes later. Mm-hmm. Do you notice he's writing the letter to the Yancey Street gang? He can't write straight. Oh, I noticed that it made me laugh out loud when he wrote, Dear Yancey Street Gang, drop dead. Nah, that's too subtle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what we need Hallmark for. Yeah. Oh, we uh, we actually I, I I'm the one who took us the Fantastic Four, and I, I skipped over something I wanted to say. Two new characters uh-huh. for Namor's supporting cast. Yeah. Now, Lady Dorma dates back to the first Namor stories. Okay, I he was is, wondering about that. He is Namor's cousin, and she always is presented as having a bit of a crush on him. Um. But Warlord Krang is new for this era. Mm-hmm. And um, we haven't and done a whole lot with Namor's origin in the past. So I'm glad we finally get it here. And a love triangle. A love triangle. Well, sort of a love quadrilateral. Krang likes Dorma. Dorma likes Submariner. Submariner likes Krang. <laughs> no, Submariner likes Sue. Sue oh. likes Reed. And Reed oh. likes Krang. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Well, that's complicated. So it's like but- a love Pentagon, maybe? Yeah, but Sue and Reed are now just, like, full on, I guess, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's any other way to read it. I mean, they may still be, like, you know, a little tentative and not quite as head over heels as they once were, but they're they're definitely romantic in this. And I, I know this is kind of like, I don't know if I'm supposed to like this because, you know, she's always the female or whatever, but I did like the line, men, you're all beasts. That was kind of funny. No, I liked it, too. I didn't think it was a female thing. I think it was a, oh, my gosh, you just ruined all my stuff. Yeah, and also she is the only female of the group, and you got to imagine that would be annoying sometimes, especially since two out of the four are always acting juvenile. Right. And it's it's boys being boys, and mm-hmm. boys are dumb sometimes, especially yeah. if you're a girl who has to do with boy stuff. And they wrecked all our dresses that were custom. Yeah. Um, so 10 out of 10, Reed was just mentioning the vacation idea uh-huh. because he wanted the team to go check out these fish. Oh, yeah. I thought the same thing when I was reading it. It's like, that doesn't even sound like a vacation. Right. It's like, why go somewhere where there's probably going to be problems? And let's bring Alicia with us, 
who, by the way, does nothing in this issue. That would be my one real complaint. Like, they made this big point to bring her, and then she just doesn't do anything. Well, I think that to a certain extent, some of this issue is like checking off tropes of the Fantastic Four. Oh, yeah, that could be. Um, Because I imagine these annuals might have garnered some new readers. Or been distributed differently, maybe? Yeah, maybe that that's also too, since, especially since there's so much about 60s distribution that I really don't understand how it even worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just know that it was nebulous and hard to rely on, um, and that Marvel had to go through DC to get their books out. Yeah. Um, so that could be, yeah, they're just wanting to establish the thing has a girlfriend. Right. I mean, they're, the Nancy Street Gang gets a one-panel mention. Mm-hmm. Uh, Asbestos gets a one-panel mention. Um so I just feel like it's just one of those things. It does give Ben some motivation later to get angry at Namor. But That's still. true. That's true. Um, the, so the Atlanteans have like this amazing, crazy technology that can't be duplicated and stuff. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, I like that. I like it too, except it's also a little bizarre, some of it. But that's okay. You know, what are you going to do? Like the like you know like the fish what? that can the fish that can see like three dimensionally through things or something like that. He, he, the, the magical fish are yeah. a trope of Namor I do not like. Yes, and the, he used them a lot worse, like in one of his other appearances. So at least this time it was more technology, right? It seemed like um, hydraulic technology of some kind. So Namor's plan, if I understand correctly, mm-hmm. step one: put a lot of big scary fish out there in public where people will notice them. Mm-hmm. Step two: get Reed's attention so that he comes to investigate. Step three. Capture Reed. And step four, use the Fantastic Four to send a message to the world. I think Ben is right. That is way overly complicated. Doesn't he say, like, you could have just telegrammed? Yeah. Yeah. He's probably right. And you were saying in the summary that Reed seems unjustified in his uh, desire to make it all about Sue. But there is this panel where he says, you, my dear, need fear nothing. You are and always shall be under my royal protection. Oh, that's right. Okay. And then he's like, okay. I'll disregard what you just said about my boo, but right now let's focus on on what's going on with you on, right. on the ship. So I think – and I – you know, we've talked about it before. Like Reed always seems to act like he doesn't give a, uh, much concern for what happens to her. So obviously now they are dating because he does talk a lot about uh, Reed's – or Sue's safety in this. I guess he's still stuck in the mode where he was always bringing it up whenever she obviously was not giving him the affection back yet. Uh-huh. It's, it seems a bit more apropos at this point. You're right. Um, I also really, really like Namor's crown. Yes, it's I think it's cool. a great design for a crown. Although I've always thought that wearing metal circle hats is a really weird custom. <laughs> and usually they—I mean, I could be wrong because you know we're American; we don't have royalty here, really. But uh, you know, don't they just wear them occasionally for very big moments? They don't just walk around with a crown. That seems impractical. Depends on which cartoons you're watching, I think. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure that uh, the King of Eternia was always wearing his crown. Well, Actually, yeah. the King and Queen of Eternia never got down from those thrones. They always sat on those thrones. This actually kind of looks like a crown slash helmet because it's got like ear and neck protection and stuff. So interesting. Yeah, which I think is pretty neat. You want to have like, you know, support for your crown. Yeah. And if you punch the top of his head, you're going to get hit by his spiky things. Right. Uh, I hate spiky yeah. things on my head. Mm-hmm. Um, 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 I don't know what else to say about. Okay, so then we get to the United Nations. So, yeah, that's what I was wondering. Am I supposed to know, like, who Reed called the guy Um, in the green? Or are we not supposed to know that? I don't know if we know that guy. We do know the shoe banger. Okay. That's Khrushchev. Right. 
And this is based on a singular event where um, one of the nations of the Soviet Union, their representative was saying a lot of terrible stuff about the you know Soviet overlordship or whatever over their country. And um, Khrushchev walked up to the podium, shoved him aside and said, no, 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 none of this is true. You know, it's all we we're you know, we're good leaders. And then he was asked to go sit back down and throughout the rest of the guy's speech, theoretically, by some reports, he was banging his shoe in protest on the desk. Okay, interesting. Um, and, and still is, I guess. Yeah. And so this is a thing that he does now. He is the shoe banging person. He's only going to be in power, though, for a very short amount of time after this. So he might not be seeing the mysterious, bald, white leader of Soviet Union. I kind of glossed over that panel, but now that I'm reading it, it's kind of funny because Reed Richards is like, yeah, the Submariner's coming and he's going to kill everybody. And this panel is like him banging his shoe going, bah, it's all capitalist lies. No matter what the de- democracy say, I vote yet. It's like, wow. Yeah. Okay. We don't like communism. I get it. <laughs> that was kind of the thing, though, during the Cold War is that the U.S. would, would veto because the U.S. and, and uh, Soviet Union both had veto power yeah. on the Security Council of the U.N. So. The U.S. would veto the Soviet Union's proposals. The Soviet Union would veto the U.S. proposals. And so the U.N., at least from my limited understanding of the U.N., they were kind of a crippled body for much of the Cold War. But I don't know that they would do that if they were um, all about to die. But So, yeah. I missed some of that, but I want to assume that it's going to come out okay in the sound. Um, <laughs> yeah. I said I don't know that they would all, like, you know, cancel each other out if they were all going to be attacked by – Atlanteans who are going to destroy them all, but yeah, that's probably true. So it just makes uh, the, it just makes the communists look kind of buffoonery, buffoons, it, like buffoons in this panel. But I guess that was the point. I do feel like that maybe we are supposed to recognize some of these, uh, like if we were alive, like the guy behind Khrushchev there, uh-huh. and the guy that on the phone with the green suit. I feel like maybe those faces are drawn very specifically. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, though, as soon as the guy with the beard walks up, I immediately thought disguise. Did you? I yeah. didn't see it coming, and I left. I just thought it was absurd. But, yeah, that makes and sense. I, I actually first thought Dr. Doom. Oh, that would course, be interesting. This is, this is a Namor story, so it's not going to be Doom. So, we get the flashback and the history of Atlantis and Submariner. I don't know, because like I've said before in past episodes, I have not read any Golden Age Submariner. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much of this is old hat, how much of this is new stuff. Uh, I, um, I imagine the whole mother getting pregnant by a human thing is golden age. Yeah, basically, once we get to the panel that says, finally, late in the year 1920, man made his first recorded contact. Uh-huh. From that forward is okay. basically a retelling of the background given in, in Marvel Comics number one. So all the bit about mammal whales and mammal people or homo mermanus. <laughs> and, right. Uh, and, you know, finding shells and learning how to live and all that underwater. That's new. That's modern embellishment. Yep. Okay. And I think it's pretty great. Pretty imaginative. Can I ask a dumb maybe question? But did whales really like develop on land and become water things? Or that doesn't make sense. Yes, actually. Um, what does he say? At the dawn of time, many forms of life evolved from the sea and some of them later returned to the sea, such as the mammal we call whale. And I was just kind of like, is that true? Yes. Um, okay. There are skeletal structures in the whales that um, are 
oh, what's the word when you no longer use the body? Vestigial. They're uh-huh. vestigial bovine organs. Okay. So cattle and whales have share ancestry. Wow. Okay. Kind of like how birds have thumbs and stuff or something. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. So, and I, I like the when they get things right. That, I thought it was kind of crazy. It's like, oh my gosh, I just figured, you know, all the um, sea creatures develop on the sea and then, you know, the, well, the, some of them came up on land and that we got land animals. They show a picture that may or may not be accurate of like a whale looking thing with two legs crawling back in the water and smiling. Right. So that made me think they're just making this up. But I like when they get things right. That's cool. Yeah, and you have some modern animals like the hippo. Mm-hmm. I mean, the hippo doesn't really live on land. He lives in the water and standing deep, you know, yeah. standing room only water. So there are still animals that like, you know, are kind of this in-between place. But but yeah, it's a cool it's a cool fact of evolutionary history that not everyone realizes. So before we leave his origin, I don't know if you had anything else to say, but. Uh, uh, not on the origin, no. Okay, well, I want to talk about the fact they call him the first known mutant. Oh, okay. What do you think about that? I have a pretty strong thought on it. What do you think about it? I think it's baloney. Okay, why? Because it seems like every time an Atlantean and a human have a baby, it's a Namor-type baby. So how is that a mutant and not just like a um, mule or something? Okay, um, I think that... From a at the time perspective, they just had the idea that it was um, an interbred. I don't know if that's the right term, but you know he was Cross-bred. both human, yeah. yeah, both human and Atlantean. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing that identifies him as a mutant, according to Marvel terms as we now understand them, mm-hmm. is his flight and immense strength. But Namora or Namorita or both have the same thing. But they don't exist at this point. I mean, you're right. No, I know, no, and neither do mutants. So I'm, I'm just thinking ahead to where they will continue to call they do him, call him the, the f- first mutant. Do they call him the first mutant in this book? Yes, but there are no other mutants, so that's kind of pointless. Yeah, yeah, yeah they did. Okay, but I'm just saying Sorry. that made me think like they continue to do that, and even to this day, he is often in X-Men books or at least talked about as the first mutant. And I always think right. like, yeah, but if you can duplicate it, how is it a mutation? You know. If it's a thing that always happens. And the mutants in this universe have like this mutant gene or something. Right. Which makes random powers. And yet there's Namora and Namorita and anybody who has, you know, relations with this with a blue skinned Atlantean creates a submariner. So I don't know. I've never really bought into him being a mutant, at least in that sense. It's 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 a good point. So you're thinking that, you know, whenever a horse. Whenever you have a new species or whenever you have <laughs> yeah. two species interacting, the resulting offspring might have new traits unpredicted by the parents. So if you have a horse and a donkey and they have a baby, it's always a mule. But a mule right. is not a mutated thing or a mutant or an aberration. No. Now, if the, mu- if the mule came out and it could shoot laser beams out of its eyes and it's the only one that's ever done that or ever will do that, even when it has more babies and they don't shoot laser beams out of their eyes, that seems like a mutation to me. At least in the way Marvel defines it. Okay, I can go with that. Yeah, Namor's. I agree. I've always felt a little bit sketchy about Namor's mutant status, but I thought the the wing feet was a pretty good way to explain it. But you're right; they all have wing feet. I think they do. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I thought. Well, at I'm least... reading New Warriors, and Namorita's flying around. So all right, I, so I, there you go. So it's duplicatable, duplicatable, yeah. whatever. Okay, just something to talk about, even though we haven't even talked about X Men yet. So we'll see what they have to say about it. Someday. Oh, but it's coming soon. It's very it's soon. soon. Very soon. Okay, so I don't have a whole lot on the invasion. 
I think it's cool. There's a lot of stuff going on there, but I'll go with your thoughts. Very good art. I'm amazed that they wrapped it up so quickly considering all the setup and how if it were me writing, that would be the story. Um, But yeah, it was over fairly quickly. And I don't really understand how his one beam would destroy a worldwide conquest. Well, he says like your cursed evaporation ray blanketed the earth. So I guess Reed is very thorough. It does have like eight different things popping out of it. Yeah. You know what okay. I don't get is how Reed Richards can be crushed. But um yeah, cuz he's like slid under smaller things before. So what? That's weird. Well, maybe it's the difference between voluntary movement versus involuntary being forced to move. Could be, could be. Yeah, maybe he was like not expecting to go flat or something. Yeah, like your arm can go that way, but if it's wrenched that direction when you don't want it to be, it can, it can be painful. Yeah. Okay, I'll buy into that. Um yeah, I don't have a lot to say either. The invasion was cool. Page, page 26. Um, Great fight. On the first panel, Namor's fighting Reed, and he says, The reason you humans will be defeated is because of your arrogant self-confidence and conceit. And I'm like, um, Namor? <laughs> <laughs> you want to back that truck up and look at what you just said? <laughs> it, but then whenever Reed replies, he says, how can you conquer two billion humans? Uh-huh. You can't even beat me. And I'm like, um, two billion. We have seven and a half billion now. Was it two in 1963? I think it was two in 1963. I think we first, I think we had our first billion after World War II. Oh, well, that's scary. Yeah. Um, I keep telling Lawrence, everybody, let's stop fixing wisdom teeth. Just yeah. make it a law. Worldwide law. No more wisdom teeth. That'd wipe out a bunch of us. <laughs> I like this fight. It's kind of silly because he's a ball and he's being used as a punching bag. But at the same time, it's well drawn and it looks fun. Um, um, I think that the torch has a lot of really good moments in this, but one of them is not at the top of page 28. Whenever he turns his flame <laughs> okay. and says, now if I, can, if I can just remember how Reed told me to whip up a flaming probing device. All right. So when he was going after the eel, he did the same thing, only with the transistor connected to his flame somehow. And now he can just do it without it. Yeah. They and really the top of the, want him to be Green Lantern. At the top of the next page, he's using it as a stethoscope. He has it plugged into his ears. Yeah. So how does that even matter? What is that? He's listening or something? Listening for... Because before, it's it's a probe... I guess you listen to a probe. I don't know. Yeah, it was some sort of like radar probe or something. I don't yeah. know. So it's like a sonar. It's fire. Thing. <laughs> it's just fire, Mike. I know. It's, it's fire. That's I can, horrible. I, I can deal with him shaping fire. That's his power. Okay, but it's fire. It's not electronics. And then Namor throws some crazy magic fish at him, and then he explodes a volcano. He somehow knew was right there under him in the water. And then there's right. more magic fish. And even though it's super really well drawn, it's just like kind of super silly um, Human Torch versus Submariner fighting. But he he does blow the volcano by, by flying through the ocean. Mm-hmm. So keeping his flame alive down into the ocean, he has not been able to do that before. That has been his nemesis in the past is going into the ocean. No, last time they fought he did it. He stayed alive in the ocean? Yeah, he made like a hot... Hot Pocket or something like that, remember? Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, still, I I think this is more than that. Yeah. Yeah, it's always a little crazy. Um, Fire versus water is really magic fish versus crazy abilities that don't make sense. 
but I don't have a whole lot else until Sue gets kicked out. Okay, so do you think... I know she loves him, even though she's more into Reed now, I think. I think she's legit more into Reed now. Yeah. But do you think that she would still, even if she never loved him or thought she loved him, do you think she would still be sympathetic to Namor and think that he's just fighting for what he believes in and he's not really as bad as like Dr. Doom? It's a good question. Um, it's hard to say because she has been uh-huh. emotionally invested in him in the past and that colors your opinion on things. Right. Um. I'd like to think, yes, I'd like to think that Susan is using her humanism and that, you know, both sides in a war ostensibly are fighting for things that are important to them. Yeah, I agree. I I would like to think the same thing. We'll never know, of course, but she is generally the wisdom of the group. So yeah, if if any of them are going to think that it's going to be her. I actually feel a little bit bad for her mm-hmm. because she respects Namor and she does still have compassion for him. Is there anything romantic there? I think that was kind of quashed. And even if there's some hormonal stuff going on, it's, it's, it's counterbalanced by her mind at this point. Uh-huh. Um, and on one side, she gets Reed all jealous that she's going to go off with Namor. And on the other side now, she has Lady Dorma all envious that Namor is going to go off with her. And she's just trying to live her best life, guys. She's <laughs> just She's just trying to do... What she does. Yeah, they're kind of fighting amongst these other while she's just there to be the object of their anger. Right. Which, by the way, now I'm thinking about it, is Namor wrong? What is his ultimate plan? Because if you look at the next page, he says, I have no desire to take human life. Why do you not surrender and save yourself as he's trying to punch the thing to death? Mm -hmm. So what was the plan with us? when Once once he wins, is he going to gun us all down? Live in peace with us? What? His goal was to just keep the oceans free from humans. Uh Uh-huh. But then when he decided that he didn't like the way Reed was talking about defending their borders and stuff, he decided to take over the borders. And ultimately, if he had won, if all those troops were still there pointing guns at us, is he going to let us live our life? Is he going to subjugate us? I guess we never know because he loses. But Uh, It could just be a show of force saying, hey, this is our power. Uh huh. We have the right to have our sovereign space. Leave us alone. Mm-hmm. You know, make just forcing them to listen and forcing them to accede to his wishes, not to like get a victory and even more, but you know, just to make himself heard. So Sue's not really wrong because you know, if you and I were Atlantean, we'd probably be on his side, right? So. Yeah, most conflicts are not Hitler-style conflicts where there's like a definite bad guy trying to conquer the world. I know. Most conflicts are two re- two people who are fighting over their desires for resources. That's why World War II is such a great fictional setting because you actually yeah. can't you can root for the good guy, right? Um, um and yeah, I, that by the end of the story, we're getting some really genuine affection from Sue for Reed. They're mm-hmm. holding hands. She says, "I have so much to make up to you." And um, it's really, really great. Yeah. You know what I forgot to ask about or talk about is like when they recap. Sorry to just flip way back again. But they when, no, they, when they recap Submariner's origin, uh-huh. they um, completely skipped over any of his World War II activity. They did. And I'm wondering if that was just because they didn't want to get into explaining how he used to be a hero and now he's not anymore. Or because they just don't know how to deal with that other characters yet yeah they did it kind of smoothly because that's when reed interrupts Uh uh-huh um 
And he says that Namor the Submariner has been mankind's enemy ever since his undersea homeland was accidentally devastated by an H-bomb test at the sea. Now, that's actually a big old gloss. Mm-hmm. Because he was amnesiac for years. He woke up a year ago, or less than a year ago, and discovered his H-bomb. His, his, his place had been destroyed by an H-bomb. And that's where he's been causing trouble. So... Yeah, I feel like you're right. They don't really know how to reconcile the old stories with the current stories. So rather than just try, they're going to ignore them. Yeah, because you can't really talk about Namor being a hero in World War II without talking about the people he was being a hero with. And Captain America kind of pulls a similar move. Rather yeah. than talk about all the, all, all, the, all the actual things that have in those comics, they make up a new story mm-hmm. for how Captain America landed in the ice. Yeah, that's like the biggest retcon ever, but and we'll get to that not soon, but kind of soon. It's in the I can we're, see we're getting closer. I can it's see not... the light at the end of the tunnel now. So right. Um, but yeah, neighbor once again alone, sad. Fantastic Four, happy. You really feel bad for the guy. Mm-hmm. It's it's good to know that someday he will not be a bad guy all the time. Anyway, he's I never looking. He's never really been a bad guy so far. No, he's he's a conflicted like. I mean, he's a bit of a jerk. Yeah, but but um, you know, so is Hulk, and we like him. Yeah, you've got yeah. a point. Yeah, I'm curious to see how we move from this to him being back with his people again because he's back with his people in pretty short order. Probably, um, you know, I think he shows up in the Avengers next, right? Not to the spoil Avengers anything. three could be where he shows up there next. He starts teaming up with Hulk. Yeah. I don't know. I can't remember. So let's just get there someday we'll, um, we'll see how it goes as we get there so this annual is cooler than the strange tales one in my opinion because it has yeah if you're gonna have an annual and you have to suffer an annual it's nice when they throw in bonus stuff yeah because this is full of new content even though it's all stories it's new content so they got what i call like what i'm thinking of is like the proto uh official handbook of the marvel universe kind of things going on in these yeah so it's like it's all villain, I think, and I'll just say who the villains are. They got it's the a mo- gallery of villains: the Mole Man, Scrolls, Miracle Man, Submariner. I have to pan ahead a little bit. Doctor Doom, Kurgo, Master of Planet X, the Puppet Master, and that's it. But all of them are like big, nice, like pictures of them on the side, and then on the other side is like uh, descriptions of who they are and a first appearance, and then like a little panel showing them in action, just like. The official handbook of the Marvel Universe does, only they do it with even more text. But I think that's cool. Like if you didn't if you hadn't read every issue of the Fantastic Four up to this point, you could still get like a little knowledge on who the Mole Man is or the scrolls or God Miracle Man. Right. Um, that's just neat. That's the stuff that's how I learned about things as a kid. I, I didn't start reading comics till the eighties. So all, you know, anything I could get my hands on that explained something that I didn't have a copy of was awesome. And trying to think about who else they might have left out of this list. I feel like um, they just, I is mean, everything repeat after that. Um, well, in between that, there's like a, this question and answer thing. And then it goes to the Spider-Man versus Fantastic Four deluxe edition. So they didn't do the thinker from issue no. 15. No, Maybe they, that was too recent. They go up to FF number eight. It looks like eight was Puppet Master, seven Kurgo, Doctor Doom. Yeah, I guess they just cover the oh, no, first no, issue. More, there are more after the Spider-Man thing. Oh, are there? I didn't keep going. Yeah. Okay, so later on in the book, uh, there are the Impossible Man. Yep. The Hulk. Incredible Hulk. That's interesting 12, that they throw him in there. The Red Ghost and his Incredible Super Apes. 
uh, the, the Mad, Mad Thinker. Thinker and his awesome android. And then maybe that's and it. And that's the end. Then they re- they reprint the origin portion of Fantastic Four One. So essentially, they just did the first fifteen bad guys, yeah. or in the case of Hulk, threats or whatever they want to call them. Right, and then um, after fifteen was issue sixteen, which is a Doctor Doom for two issues, and then we're like super current. Yeah. The Super Scroll came out the same like the month before this, so he's probably going to be in next year's gallery. So I had this plan because there's like this two-page thing of questions and answers, and each character gets a question and answer thing. And I was thinking it'd be cool to read them in the show. But now I think since we're probably going to go along anyway, that maybe I'll just post them on the show notes. And if you're interested, you can check them out. But it's basically like Reed Richards, Human Torch thing, and Invisible Woman. And there's like about five or six questions each, probably from readers, that Marvel answers. So if you're interested in what... Marvel thinks of these characters as of 1963. You can check that out. Yes. And Johnny is officially established as 16 in his senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. Which is the same for Spider-Man. And he loves no, no. sports cars, jazz records, and girls. Right. <laughs> Johnny goes to college before Spider-Man. He's older. Well, no, you're wrong. You're not wrong. I mean, I'm wrong. Uh... I guess Spidey gets retconned as younger later. Is that how that works? Because right, yeah. right now he's also a senior. He's presented as being a senior. And it's never explicitly said this is their senior of high school. But in the very first issue, they were talking about scholarships for college. So if, if in year one, and they don't retcon this, if in year one spot, or Human Torch is 17 or 16, well, that should be about the same age as Spider-Man when he gets retconned then, you would mm-hmm. think. Because he says he's been Spider-Man since he was 15 years old. I think they just don't know what ages are. Maybe. I like our ages better. Every time we make the ages, the story makes more sense. Right. So forget what they say. Maybe I won't even post those answers. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> no, I think, they're, I think they're cool. I think it's a cool couple of pages. Um, the one other thing this annual has is the fabulous Fantastic Four meets Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Now, so this was unaware, weird. Yeah. If, if you're unaware, there was a lot of complaint about the Fantastic Four appearance in Amazing Spider-Man 1 earlier in the year. And so um, the complaint was that Steve Ditko doesn't draw the Fantastic Four the way Jack Kirby draws the Fantastic Four. Uh-huh. I bet he so, loved hearing that. <laughs> but he did, too. Jack Kirby comes along and redraws the entire sequence of Spider-Man invading the FF headquarters. Now, most of the panels are just Jack Kirby... Almost like he's inking Steve Ditko's work because it's, yeah, this it's is the same layout. This is what's weird is they yeah they basically take the exact same story. It's almost like he just retraces the panels that already existed. But he does the faces and the details in his manner. But kind of like that second panel right away. That was one of my least favorite panels that Ditko did, and it looks the same mostly. Yeah, like the detailing on things rocks is different. And, and there's the next stretch, which he wouldn't do, probably, if it was his own layout. Now, the credits say drawn by Jack Kirby inking Steve Ditko. Uh-huh. So it's like we still have Steve Ditko influence here. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure that those are those, those credits are entirely accurate. Um, but the thing that makes this a new read, no pun intended, is that during the fight between Spider-Man and each of the Fantastic Four members... Um, he basically got, there was one exchange between Spider-Man and each of the four, whereas here, each encounter with one of the four members gets extended a bit. So the thing punches him, Spider-Man throws him, the thing 
wrenches up the floor to throw spider against the wall. He throws some mechanical stuff at him, and then Spider-Man throws a net at him that, that like, you know, electrocutes him. Uh-huh. Only some of that was in the original. But see, like, look at even page three. There's that wispy, weird read again. So it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't feel like they gave him a blank piece of paper and the original plot and said, do your own version. I no. think he just opened up the book and either retraced or literally took the same panels or something or re-inked it or something. Because it's like, it's not Jack Kirby to me. Like, compare this to what we just read, Namor's Invasion of Manhattan. Well, like... It's weird. Yeah, like, the, the two things that are the most un-Kirby-like with Miss Fantastic or whenever he makes the really big hands uh, and he's all loopy ropey trying to get out of the web. And he does both those, those things. Those two so. panels were in the original version. Uh-huh. And in still this, he, Yeah, he does snake out of the web. It's a natural continuation from the previous panel. And then he turns into a steamroll and does all the other stuff that is... It's still a bit unusual. Jack Kirby doesn't usually have him do this kind of stuff, but it's all new stuff for this issue. For sure. Yeah, the whole... I think the wind... The fan... The yeah, invisible woman having her own private, you know, super fan... To, right. to blow Spider-Man against the wall. Uh, it's so powerful, it blows him against the wall, but then he gets out of it by shooting Webb at the fan. That's interesting. But, yeah, it, I don't know that it did anything for me. I don't know that it would have made anybody happier. The last page still looks very Ditko to me. Uh, yeah, the last page is almost entirely... The same? Yeah. Now, okay, the panel where Fantastic Mr. Fantastic is a giant t-shirt... <laughs> yeah. That is the same idea as Steve Ditko's art. That is not the same drawing. But it's, because the drawing in the original is like at a different angle. Mm. And he's like, you know. But it's not something Kirby would ever do if left to his own no. violation or volition. So violation. Um, I just think it's it's just a weird thing that they did. Maybe just for historical reasons, it's interesting. I don't know that they would ever do something like this again. No, they would either. It's so weird. Like, oh, you didn't like the way we drew that? Let's redraw it with a better artist and give you more pages. The only thing I can think of is one year, like image or one month image, like swapped all their artists. Um, Oh yeah. And then Eric Larson was upset. Not ups- I don't know if he was upset with how the art came out for his Savage Dragon drawn by Jim Lee, I think, but he also maybe was kind of upset that his streak was broken if he didn't draw it himself. So he also, mm-hmm. he re-released that issue with his own artwork. Yeah. Cause I think that, um, writing and drawing every issue of the series himself mm-hmm. was a claim he wanted to be able to make. Mm-hmm. So that's all I can think of is like an instance of redrawing the same story. But in that case, it was completely different. Well, that does bring us to the end of the Fantastic Four annual. Yeah. Which brings us to the end of this episode. And we're just going to take a little minute to gush over the next three episodes, which are covering the rest of July 1963. So what's one thing you see there, Mike? <sighs> well, I see X-Men number one. Yes, and Avengers number one. And Avengers number one. Those are the two big things I see. Yeah, the last Thor issue before Jack Kirby comes back. So Jack Kirby is coming back in August. Uh-huh. We have the last Ant-Man issue. Giant Man comes along in August. Okay. Spider-Man against Doctor Doom. Uh, the Fantastic Four meet Rama Tut, which means the first appearance of Kang. <gasps> and another first appearance of a villain. Yeah. Crimson Dynamo. Crimson Dynamo. That's one of his big, bigger guys, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And Plant so, Man. 
No, 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 no. Plant Man. That is another Joe Siegel issue. Oh, oh, oh. Johnny gets a girlfriend. Johnny gets a steady girlfriend in that one. But yeah, so as much as I love Fantastic Four Annual number one, man, when it comes to the end of the month and picking our favorites, we're going to also have X-Men number one and Avengers number one. And Amazing Spider-Man is going to fight Doctor Doom. Yeah. Uh, Oh, well, that's another thing. Because at this point, uh, Amazing Spider-Man goes monthly. Oh, yeah. So there's going to be a lot of competition this month. He's going to be a regular thing from now on. And nothing looks horrible. Maybe Plant Man. We'll see. We'll see. Oh, Thor is fighting Merlin and not a yeah. cool Merlin. So that That's might be going to be an easy low pick. Um, we'll see if there's anything else that competes with it for low pick. Yeah. But honestly, by the end of this Bernstein run, this pre-Kirby run, I'm so ready for Jack Kirby to come back. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. I'm ready for like Thor to get some more steady villainy. I guess I'm ready for all of them to get that. But Which is one of the first things Kirby does. He starts giving him more interesting villains that stick. He hasn't had one yet, has he? Just Loki. Oh, he had Radioactive uh, Man. The Radioactive Man, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Radioactive Man. I mean, because like Strange Tales introduced at least the wizard and and uh, Pace Pot Pete and the uh, 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 the acrobat and stuff. So like, I feel like Thor is is hitting nothing except Radioactive Man, really, and Loki. Yeah, yeah obviously. All right, folks. Well, um, that does bring us to the end of the episode, and. Um, Mike? Yeah? Sometimes we like them to write us emails. We like them to write us emails. We prefer it if they address it to podcast at makearsmarvel.com. Most other addresses won't work. Uh, Or if you can't remember that, go to our form at makearsmarvel.com. Click contact us. And there's a nice little form there you can just fill out. Uh, And also while you're there, check out the pretty pictures. Check out the links. Uh, Hit play. Write a review on iTunes. I'm sorry I'm being so bossy. I'm just trying to think of things for you guys to do. Or just listen and enjoy. That's cool, too. That is cool, too. And uh, continue to uh, retweet new episodes. We always appreciate the support on Twitter and Facebook, letting your friends know about us and spreading the word. And until someone brings the fox back for another frickin' story, make ours marvel. marvel.